This podcast is brought to you by StoreMaven. I won't lie, I am an employee at StoreMaven, so I want to tell you a little bit about why it's the greatest company on earth. If you're interested in growing your app in any way, organically, paid, both, we have tools to help you do it, whether it's optimizing your creatives, measuring the success and the effect of different efforts that you're taking, or just telling you what people look for in an app. We're here to help you do it. Make sure that you're always listening. Make sure you're having as many conversations as possible, you know, with people in the industry. And also if you have managed to get a role in a company with the customers at the company as well and documenting all of the conversations that you're having. Welcome to Mobile Growth and Pancakes, a podcast by Stormaven. We break down how and why mobile apps grow. In each episode, we invite a mobile growth expert onto the show to break down a specific mobile growth strategy, how it worked, why it worked, and what they would do differently. I'm your host, Esther Schatz. Welcome to Mobile Growth and Podcast. I'm joined here today by Hannah Parbaz, and uh, she's been running things at Curio, and I'll let you talk that through in a second, but also, um, I mean, you've, you're pretty much synonymous with mobile growth. Uh, I think uh, you won, no, in 2019, you won Growth Marketer of the Year, maybe. Did I make that up? So uh, I'm I'm super excited to have you. Yeah, App Marketer of the Year. <laughs> yeah, App Marketer of the Year. This is, uh, um, yeah, so Hannah, why don't you uh, introduce yourself a bit? Tell us about what you do, your work at Curio. Of course, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be on with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm Hannah. I look after growth for Curio. So for the listeners, if you hadn't heard of Curio. We're an audio journalism app. We partner with publications like the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Guardian, uh, the Economist, and so on, and curate the best of their writing and then bring it to life through audio. So with voice actors rather than uh, with AI or anything like that. And for Curio, our goal, what we what we really want to do is to help people you know, become wiser, more empathetic and more fulfilled. And um, we feel like as a company that sharing the insights from the top writers and thought leaders in a super accessible way um, that that we can help with that. And then for the growth side, in case the role growth (laughs) sounds a bit fluffy, which often people are like, what does growth even even mean? Uh, I basically focus on different areas of the customer life cycle, which need a little love. So at the moment, I'm having a huge focus on paid acquisition so that we can drive a lot of traffic to the top of our funnel. Awesome. I think, first of all, Curio, it's an incredibly cool app, but I like that you said, you know, you're bringing the human touch because it is really different to have AI kind of narrating in a robotic way, which, you know, often also has a uh, it has its flaws, the kind of automatic uh, text, whatever, but it's much more of a, almost like an audiobook discussion experience. And I think just brings a much nicer side to news instead of thinking of it as this robotic sort of, uh, you know, fact, fact, fact. Exactly. I mean, it, it really helps to kind of bring out the human elements of it because at the end of the day, anything in journalism or anything that's happening in the world is down to like humans <laughs> and things that people have done. And it's, it's really about, it's about how we can kind of connect with each other and connect together. And then, you know, rather, oh, sorry, go on. 
I was going to say, rather than AI, you know, uh, we try to pair the voice actors with pieces that will suit them as well. So, you know, if it's a, a man that's written it, we try and, you know, get a man to read the piece out. Or if it's a person of color, like we'll try and find someone of the same ethnicity or national nationality to read it out so that you can get more of a, like a feel for the piece rather than having just kind of the same uh, the same voice trying to cover all different stories. That makes a lot of sense. I never thought, I, I don't know, you never think about the kind of the, the side of it, but uh, I love that that's, uh, that's this concept that there's different writers, of course there are, and they bring different voices and you want it to, to cover that full experience. So, you know, we're definitely avoiding AI in, uh, in that translation, but I know you do a lot of work around ad automation and kind of bringing in a little more of the tech side. Do you want to uh, tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So um, at Curio, we use a lot of kind of signal-based automation uh, throughout our advertising. So we can touch on that a bit more later, but we're basically always trying to maximize our usage of signals rather than kind of micro-targeting. So, um, and I think that's an industry-wide uh, trend at the moment. So we're becoming more and more reliant on automation to get the best results. When you say signals, can you give me an example of what kind of signals you're looking to optimize for? Of course. So, I mean, rather than, you know, previous, like, Previously, you know, people might have wanted to run ads for impressions and often you're actually billed for the impressions. But what we want to do is optimize as far down the funnel as possible. And we want to optimize for our success metric. So we want to, you know, create a broad an audience as possible so that we can feed as many events back into the audience and then let that do the targeting for us. So... I mean, I can tell you a bit more, more about the elements that, that we automate, if you like. Definitely. I mean, I think, though, you have a good point there that, uh, and it's something that actually we had um, Cheng Chen from uh, Otter AI, and she said something that I think ties into that, which is the more you kind of narrow down your audience, the more you're focused on, you know, these demographics or these kind of micro-targeting, you end up missing out on potential groups of people who should be audiences who haven't been yet, you know, areas where you didn't know that you have that exposure. So I really like that idea of saying, you know, it's not the group, it's the behavior. And that's what we're kind of surfacing. Um, but yeah, let's, let's drill in a little bit more. Tell, tell me how it goes. Yeah. Well, um, at Curie, the bulk of our advertising at the moment is through Facebook. So, and I mean, by Facebook, I mean, their whole, uh, portfolio ecosystem yeah that whole portfolio <laughs> of placements so facebook instagram uh their audience network uh and everything and obviously you know facebook and all of the advertising platforms are pushing for as much automation as possible uh probably because it's the most beneficial for them and their algorithms but also because they've seen the best results for it um and so to really leverage it you have to have again broad audiences so it's something that works really well on Facebook, but I haven't necessarily seen the same success on other platforms, but it just means that with a broad audience that we're keeping the audiences as large as possible. And uh, how you do that is just by removing the detailed targeting, uh, the interests, you know, maybe even the age and the gender uh, and targeting whole geographies, for example. Um, so, you know, once we started seeing some success with this, so we might have been targeting the UK, for example, we went 
even broader and stopped targeting specific placements. So rather than just targeting Facebook uh, and Instagram separately, you know, combine them both and then see what happens there. Uh, you don't really need to create different uh, ad sets and targeting for that. And actually on Facebook now, you can create one ad and put within that one ad, all of the different creatives for the placements in there. So it will automatically serve the correct creative in the relevant placement. So we've got, we've removed all the targeting, we've re, we're targeting all the placements and what we were still doing for a while was still picking geographies out. Um, so something that I've been testing out recently, um, you know, in the last couple of months, especially has just been grouping all of our geographies together. So really letting the algorithm just do everything itself. Um, and we're really lucky actually that we're a global product. So we have subscribers, you know, all over the world in almost every country except like Antarctica <laughs> and we were, <laughs> uh, but if we were confined to just one country, like I, uh, for example, I've worked on apps in the past, which have been London only and things like this, I would still try to remove as much targeting as possible and, and target city wide or, or as wide as you can go and just let the signals do the targeting for me. And when you're going that broad and kind of even taking away you know, territory, geo, everything there, do you hit issues with, uh, you know, with the ability to customize the messaging per audience? I mean, language is the most obvious one, I guess, that comes to mind, but also being able to show creatives that are maybe more regionally relevant in one place or the other. How do you tackle that balance when you're going yeah. so broad? So now uh, we've kind of taken more of a creative first approach rather than an audience first approach. Um, so you know, what that means is basically we have a huge uh, backlog of creative concepts and over the last couple of years, we've tested out like 20 or 25,000 different ad combinations to find out, you know, which text is going to work with which headline, which is going to work with which image. And um, so we always have to have a lot of backlog that's going to work with each other. And Although I'm saying, you know, it's creative first, that doesn't mean that we're, we're, you know, disregarding our audience. It's actually meaning that we're doing the audience research up front. So just, you know, if, as an example, when I joined Curio, uh, there was a load of ads flying around and that there was a load of ads flying around. They were mostly logo led. Uh, and tying into what was kind of the company slogan at the time, which was intelligent audio for busy people. And that, I mean, that was great. It was a really great uh, slogan, um, but there were, and it, that was a really great slogan and it was very to the point, but there were other things um, that when I was comprehension testing them, they were really, uh, they were scoring really low. Like people just didn't understand what, what they meant. So when I joined, I went away and spoke to loads of our users for weeks. And, you know, all of a sudden I was having these conversations and hearing all of these amazing stories about people um, and how they've finally been able to connect with their family at dinner because they've been learning about George Orwell or a politics teacher who was able to uh, tap into his students' interest because he'd listened to a bunch of stories about electric vehicles. Um, and then you know, when I was asking them, okay, but why is learning important uh, to you? Why is sharing important to you? Why is this app, why are you using ultimately? You know, they were saying because, you know, to learn, uh, then they get to share it and they're able to connect with people more and see more interesting. So if we take that kind of approach 
and and think about you know the ultimate reason why we get to you know it, it starts to give us some brilliant messaging to start testing with and if you can start to pa- spot these patterns through your conversations with your with the, your customers you're able to you know come up with a portfolio of motivators and barriers uh, that will help people use your app and then start you know putting in all of these different creatives into a broader audience and seeing what works so I would love to hear more about this process because it sounds like definitely you're doing a lot of testing, right? You have all the different combinations and, and everything that you're doing out, which is probably, I'd imagine, pretty straightforward qualitative testing. But it sounds like you started at a point well before that with um, definitely actually speaking to your users. How, how does that even go? How do you decide who to meet? How do you find them? What, you know, it's a... Uh, how does one come? It sounds like that was kind of the first thing you did. How do you come in and just figure out qualitative uh, insights and testing and everything like that. Yeah, there's this amazing book uh, that I would recommend everyone read called The Mom Test. And, you know, it's a really quick read. It's just like a hundred or so pages. Um, But it really just tells you that people, when you're talking to them, they don't actually know what they want. And you have to ask questions in a certain very open way to let them just come to you and tell you the information. So, I mean, for example, never lead in in, in your interviews and things like this. Um, so when I joined uh, Curio and when I've been at companies in the past, there's usually some kind of uh, database available, like even if it's very small and what I, I would literally just personally reach out to people on that database and ask them, you know, I'm doing some research and I would love to get some feedback from you. I want to make the product, the best product possible. And, and, you know, I could really use your help and you'd be surprised. Like a lot of people are really willing to help. And I mean, obviously the more, uh, active someone is on your product, the more likely they are to help. So you get amazing feedback from your hard active users. And I think that the feedback that you also get from people who have, you know, installed your app or signed up to your list and actually never used your product is just as valuable because then you get the barriers uh, and, and you can really tap into those and, and you know, frame things in a way that, that might help them as well. How do you keep from falling down the rabbit hole of, I'd imagine, you know, there's endless directions to take it and you're probably getting so many signals from so many people. Where do you, uh, where do you know that you find the gems and find the things that you actually want to pull out and take further and use, um, you know, that you, you think is wider spread than just the person telling you? Of course. So first of all, I mean, it can't just be based on three or four conversations. Uh, it will usually be based on, you know, you have to have a minimum of, of you know, I, I like to have a minimum of 10 conversations to validate something and then you can score it, um, you know, in a percentage. I mean, of course you can do a percentage with any kind of numbers, but I like to say like 90%, you know, and, um, you do tens and tens of conversations about a topic and, you know, you start to spot these patterns and from those patterns, you can then start to quantify it. So I, I mean, I'm very old school. Like I'll just make a spreadsheet. I'll make a spreadsheet and put in all of the conversations and pull out manually all of the topics that people have spoken about, you know, that they're interested in one thing and not the other, or that they use the product in a certain way. And then, you know, I might find that 80% of people uh, are saying the same thing. And then this is something that we can tap into. So then you find kind of these, uh, the areas that are starting to really come up and that feel and you're seeing are more relevant. How do you translate that into a creative process? How do you take that and move into 
okay, now we're turning this into ads and we're turning this into a process where we're going to see what we have. Um, you know, exactly. talk, talk me through that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with this specifically, you know, you get sometimes amazing quotes from people that you can use. So I, I've often used direct quotes from people in my ad copy, which has been really beneficial. Um, and then as well as that, you know, if you can find someone who's a great copywriter to try and distill what the messaging is into like in, into, you know, five or six concise words, then, then you're onto a winner. Obviously you should start to, you know, don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You have to come up with different variations. So, you know, for become one of our best performing ads says become the most interesting person in the room, which came from all of these user conversations that we were having. And it came from people saying, I want to seem more interesting. Like I want to, you know, convey that I'm interesting to people. I want to connect with people and have conversations. So from that, you know, we tried lots of things. We tried to become the most interested person in the room. Uh, we tried lo lots and lots of different things, but ended up with having uh, become the most interesting person in the room. And, you know, it's interesting to see the responses to this because some people think interesting means smartest and so on. And it's really interesting always to see how people recognize that line uh, because we've really led with that one for a long time. But, you know, overall to, 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 to feed it into the creative process, we take combinations of user quotes, customer quotes, and, and pair them with, with great copywriting. And I mean, I love that you're, you know, I think a lot of times user feedback is thought of as a product domain, you know, that's what we're using to enhance our product. And that's why we're speaking to existing users. And I love that you're taking it further back into the very top stage of the funnel. Do you work with, with product on this? I mean, if you're changing your messaging around bringing people in, or did, have you found the right synergy of how you communicate that, you know, once, once the actual download occurs? Yeah. I mean, I think growth itself is a product role. It was not necessarily just a marketing role. <clears throat> so, you know, it's the kind of cross section between both because we have to, you know, we're, we're having these customer conversations and, you know, it's not just marketing copy we're getting out of it and marketing ideas. These, this is where we're finding out what they want from the product and, and so on as well. And, you know, this is where we find out that people are always telling their friends about it and that we should develop a referral scheme and things like this. So there'll always be, you know, product led things, but there should also be kind of growth led elements as well within the product. Um, and then, yeah, of course we make sure that you know, the whole uh, journey, the whole user life cycle, we try and make sure that this, you know, works all really well together. And then, of course, using Facebook ads, this optimizes really well. So whatever you're doing in your funnel uh, and further down your funnel gets optimized from the top because we'll be our, our success metric will be purchased, for example. So now this uh, this takes me to a question I keep finding myself coming to whenever I'm speaking to anyone, which is, we talk about the IDFA changes that are coming and uh, seems like they just announced early spring. So I'm taking that as March. Um, but when we're focused on, on kind of signal and behavioral elements, you know, what, what happens in the world of automation when we're, when we're blocked from a lot of those, uh, you know, that we've maybe been more accustomed to having until now. Definitely. And I think with iOS 14, 
as I said, you know, there's a push towards moving to, there's a push towards moving towards more and more automation. And, you know, that means creatives are more important than ever. So we're losing and have already, you know, lost like a lot of interest-based targeting and we're going to be losing a lot more as well as some of the attribution and so on. So, you know, it's, I mean, what I'm most excited about is being able to really take a creative first approach again. Um, and then over, overall with, you know, iOS 14, um, I think one of the most exciting new things that have come out is that Facebook have released a new, uh, without sounding like a Facebook fangirl, <laughs> but Facebook have announced a new feature, um, a new function called the automated app ads, um, which were born out of the movement of potential signal loss going forward. Um, and, you know, it's in, they're really moving with the industry as a whole, you know, following with following on from Google's automated app campaigns, for example. Um, so, you know, what we're seeing is that the platforms, you know, they, they think that they have like such powerful algorithms that they're able to do better targeting than we ever could anyway. So you're saying trust in them, let them, uh, let them do their thing. They're doing it at scale. They've got the, <laughs> the tools to invest in it. I think, yeah, I, I think with these platforms as well, they want the most money out of you, which means they want to provide the best service possible so that you keep on spending. So it's in their interest to provide, you know, scalable, uh, successful algorithms to you. Uh, but I think I agree with what you're saying about it's it's really going back to creative first because now the main, you know, I think the thing that really filters the users who are coming in the way you're really most able to approach users when you're not, you know, you guys haven't really ever been there, but for companies that have really relied on, say, a lookalike audience and, and kind of purely focused on the specific demographics, now you're allowing your creatives to do that filtering in a sense, speaking to the people who should be coming in and making sure that they take the behaviors you're looking for them to take, not just um, fast news, you know, and then if that's not what they're actually getting, are they really going to invest in the platform? Um, you know, I think it's, it's, there's definitely going to be the balance of, they want to make creatives that are catchy, that get the impressions, that get the clicks, that get everything else that, uh, you know, you're kind of measuring at the top of the funnel. But these are these are my my these are the main tools I have to filter for the right users, and sometimes that's going to mean sacrificing some of those top of the funnel metrics in exactly. order to really get the quality. Yeah, and indeed, with you know the new IDFA changes, the predicted opt-in is about five to ten percent, and with the ones that opt out, we're only going to be able to see one event uh, anymore. So you know that might just be install, <laughs> that might just be purchase, and so on. So what we need to do is try and start sending some custom events through, which are going to be prior, like, and then prioritizing them in order of importance. So your custom event might be a combination event of, you know, doing a core action as well as doing a revenue metric and then trying to optimize towards that rather than, than just the, the purchase, for example. Do you see this changing the structure of growth uh, and growth marketing teams moving forward? I think that there's going to have to be a lot more modeling perhaps. So maybe, you know, a bigger concentration on data analysis, even as if there wasn't enough already, but, you know, <laughs> having more speciality there. Um, and then also as well as that, just a bigger concentration on the creative. So at the moment, 
you know, growth marketing teams, you know, are going to have very close connections with their designers and their creative teams, but, you know, they're going to become more and more intertwined as time is going on, I think. And, you know, becoming one in the same again. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say maybe there's a leg up in the fact that when you're focused on automation as your structure, you're already cutting out a lot of what is going to be missing, which is you're less involved in the, you know, kind of that manual optimization of the people who are logging in every day and, you know, switching bids and switching everything. And you've already started enhancing the creative side because that's been your main control. And I'd imagine the more automation you have, the more data science has been uh, coming into place anyway. So it's more kind of changing the definitions rather than starting again from scratch. I can say there are definitely companies that are about to rebuild their teams from scratch. You know, people who have been definitely relying on uh, an old, older school ways, let's call it, of, uh, of campaign optimization. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to jump back into uh, into creatives for a second. Yeah, uh, You mentioned that you have, you have a creative that's been taught or a, a message that's been top performing for a while. Be the most intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, interesting, interesting person in the room. Um, <laughs> you know, how often... How often do creatives need to be refreshed? How often do you try, you know, is it that it's just continued to win and that's why it's still there? Or is it until uh, something happens, we're not even going to check? How do you go, how do you decide on the cadence there? Yeah, we're we're constantly testing new creatives because we want something to beat it. You know, that can't be the best thing. Like there's always going to be something better. And so our kind of creative uh, strategy is focused around, you know, working with, finding something that appeals to the most people so, and, and something that you've identified um, in your brand that has a pattern of usage for your customers and then how you can tap into that. And then at the same time, we have to think about how we can iterate and optimize on that specific creative. So for example, with our become the most interesting person in the room ad, uh, you know, we're, we're always trying different versions of it you know, a different color overlay, maybe changing the placement of logos and texts and uh, adding phone screens and, and things like this to see, you know, is there something that can tip it over? So we want to add the iteration element in and then optimize on that, you know, as a business as usual creative. And then at the same time as that, then we also have to come up with, you know, whole new creative directions uh, to test alongside it. So you know, you, you're kind of always hoping that you find a new winner, but, you know, settling. Haven't yet. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you're just, if you can't, haven't found a new winner, you're settling with having some people who wouldn't ne- necessarily resonate with your, your business as usual creative resonate with something new that you're testing, uh, even if you can't scale it. So I find in testing, um, you know, I, I get the same way where I get really attached to a specific creative that I am sure is the most brilliant thing we've ever put out and uh, devastated when it flops miserably. I'm curious to hear if you've had, you know, you you found something in your research and you really thought you had a direction or you really thought you had something they hated, you know, what's mm-hmm. been the biggest shock? What's uh, and what happened in the field that didn't happen in the theory? We did a bunch of... Um kind of motivator and barrier analysis uh, last year. And we came up with four or five different themes that we were going to test. And we ran a kind of split test. And the one that we were most surprised about not succeeding was uh, around trust. 
context. So, you know, I think maybe it was because of the time it was being run at and things like this and with fake news being thrown around, but because we're all, we're often told that people come to <clears throat> curio from a place of trust and that they know that the stories that are, that are on there are going to be correct and fact-checked and everything. Whenever we were running that as an acquisition creative, it just didn't work well because people still associate journalism often and with, with, you know, fake news and, uh, so this just didn't perform well at all, even though, you know, we, from an audience perspective, we were, we were pretty convinced that that would work. To tell you specifically around trust, it's so interesting you say that because there's two other areas where, you know, I've seen that our clients really think, or we know that trust is so important to them, which are children's apps, anything related to content that parents will be downloading for their children and finance apps. When people are putting their money somewhere, they want to be pretty, uh, pretty secure, but Something about trust messaging, I think anytime you're kind of explicitly calling out the trust, you're almost raising the flag for somebody to be like, ah, should I not trust this? You're saying you're trustworthy. Does that mean because there's, there's, you know, you're almost reminding them to mistrust before you say trust. Um, we spend a lot of time in these cases looking for signals that would indicate trust that don't speak about it at all. Um, so it's so interesting to hear that you're seeing, uh, you're seeing the same thing that this, uh, you know, that kind of the call out that is the reason and it is one of the reasons you chose us, but you don't want me to tell you that that's the reason you chose us just yet. Super interesting. You know, psychologically as well, it's like when someone tells you, trust me on this one, you're kind of going, should I not trust you on the other one then? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that one's just something that we'll need to kind of creative shop a bit more and try and distill that message into some words that don't use the word trust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get the signal across without the uh, without the statement. I guess my my last question here is: How do you grow a creative department and a process sustainably? I mean, obviously, there's a ton of manual labor involved in, in really researching and testing. How do you make that uh, an ongoing process and one that can scale comfortably as the business grows, as budgets grow? Mm -hmm. So, because every company, you know, has to have a different level of creatives. It's going to be different for every company. And obviously my experiences are just what I, what I've experienced. Um, but for us, we've had to onboard an agency because we were, go, we've been going through so many creatives and that's really helped us with our, with our flow. So we're working with them and we get at least six new creative directions per month. And then with that, we, are constantly testing and feeding back into them and iterating. And then from a internal department standpoint, uh, we've scaled out to have, you know, someone looking after brand as well and making sure that everything, like everything is congruent from that perspective as well. So, you know, from, from a department standpoint, you know, you're always looking for someone, you're always looking for people who are going to fill holes rather than just hiring to hire. Like you, I, I, I've never been kind of a person that would just hire, uh, because it, it sounds like the right role to do, but you know, if you're spotting a weakness in your team, then that's, that's an area that you can hire for rather than making someone do something that they're not necessarily going to excel at. Uh, I think, uh, outside of growth, a good tip in general of this, uh, instead of trying to fit something into a box where it doesn't belong, mm -hmm. find the piece that fits in the box and maximize what you have uh, yeah. where it belongs. 
Totally agree. All right. Because you've often hired people, you know, for a reason. And if they're not doing good work, it's probably because you're giving them the wrong work to do. Yeah, I totally agree. Especially if you, you know, if the attitude is in place and you know this is somebody who's, who's who cares about their work, you get, uh, I think our, our company also, I can say one of the philosophies we have is you kind of, we, uh, we call them mavens, we call ourselves mavens. You identify the potential of a maven. That's, that's first and foremost. We figure out where you fit and where we maximize and maybe it's not exactly what we thought we were looking for. But once we found a maven, we try to uh, customize you know, our role around that. And I think uh, it's, it's a really important point. Okay, ready to move into a quick fire round. Oh, gosh. Yeah, sure. Let's go ahead. (laughs) All right. If you could give just one tip to uh, somebody who's brand new entering the world of mobile growth marketing, what would that be? Make sure that you're always listening. So make sure you're having as many conversations as possible, you know, with people in the industry. And also, you know, if you have managed to get a get a role in a company with the customers at the company as well and documenting all of the conversations that you're having. Favorite growth resource? Favorite growth resource. So somewhere I'm getting information from. Growth Mentor. Uh, So that's a platform I mentor on, but I also uh, am a mentee on. So you can go and, you know, talk to people about any problems that you're having or or any challenges that you're facing. And, you know, it's it's direct one-on-one kind of feedback and and education. So it's, it's really great. That's awesome. Um, okay. Assuming, uh, life goes back to normal sometime soon and you get to see people face to face who in the, in the growth world would you most want to take for lunch and why? So the person, uh, from the kind of growth and, uh, marketing world that I'd most like to, uh, go out for dinner with, or, you know, have a conversation with in person is, um, someone I know called Zach. Uh, we've, been connecting a lot online lately and you know we've started kind of a clubhouse room together and and things like this which is an, is an ongoing thing uh focused on you know everybody wants to start a brand so yeah it would be really nice to just meet up in in person and and be able to to discuss everything that we've been discussing online nice okay most important question what is your favorite type of pancake ah uh, my favorite type of pancake. I love some pancakes that have blueberries cooked within them. And then also, I mean, it's a bit rogue, but then I want kind of chocolate sauce on top as well. Uh, so you go for both blueberry and chocolate sauce. Yes. I like this. A bit of a chocolate I like it a lot. <laughs> um, amazing. Hannah, where can people find you if they want to, they want to learn more or see what you're doing? Yeah, I would love to hear from anyone if anyone has any questions or anything. So you can reach me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Uh, my handle on Twitter is just Hannah Parbaz. And on LinkedIn, you can just search my name. Uh, and so I'd love to hear from you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Anna, for uh, for telling us automation, creative. We covered a, a pretty wide range. It was awesome. Uh, thank you for taking the time and happy almost birthday. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's been so wonderful talking to you. And that was Mobile Growth and Pancakes. To find out more about StoreMaven and how we can improve App Store performance, visit StoreMaven.com. And then make sure to search for Mobile Growth and Pancakes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at StoreMaven, thanks for listening.